0: Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard, this is Mind Manifest. I was joined today by Amanda Fielding. Amanda has been called the hidden hand behind the renaissance of psychedelic science, and her contribution to global drug policy reform has also been pivotal and widely acknowledged. Amanda was first introduced to LSD in the mid-60s, at the height of the first wave of scientific research into psychedelics. Impressed by its capacity to initiate mystical states of consciousness and heightened creativity, she quickly recognised its transformative and therapeutic power. Inspired by her experiences, she began studying the mechanisms underlying the effects of psychedelic substances and dedicated herself to exploring ways of harnessing their potential to cure sickness and enhance well-being. In 1996, Amanda set up the Foundation to Further Consciousness, subsequently changing its name to the Beckley Foundation in 1998. She realised that the potential harms and benefits of cannabis and psychedelics could only be adequately assessed by developing a sound, scientific understanding of their mechanisms of action. Through the Foundation... She set about using cutting-edge brain imaging technologies to examine the neurophysiological changes underlying altered states of consciousness. Her long-held aim is to further our understanding of consciousness and how changes in cerebral circulation and neuronal activity underlie the effects of various psychoactive substances so that we can better harness their potential to improve the human condition. Her body of work has two main strands. Through the Beckley Foundation's policy programme, Amanda has commissioned and published over 40 books, reports and policy papers which have analysed the negative consequences of the criminalisation of drug use and laid out possible alternatives which could protect public health, diminish violence and governmental costs and protect human rights. The Foundation's seminal 2011 public letter has been signed by presidents, Nobel laureates and other notables. Her other strand is through the leadership of the Beckley Foundation's Science Programme. Amanda has initiated much groundbreaking research and has co-authored over 50 scientific articles published in peer-reviewed journals. She collaborates with leading scientists and institutions around the world to design and direct a wide range of scientific research projects, including clinical trials, investigating the effects of psychoactive substances on brain function, subjective experience, and clinical symptoms, with a focus on cannabis, the psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, and MDMA. This pioneering research has not only shed light on the mechanisms of actions and therapeutic potential of these substances, but also on consciousness itself. This has led to a groundswell of interest in, and recognition of, the possible benefits that careful use of these extraordinary compounds can bring. The research that Amanda has initiated has shown that psychedelics hold great promise in helping individuals with illnesses such as treatment-resistant depression and addiction. Furthermore, in her role as co-director of the Beckley Imperial Research Program, she helped generate the world's first images of the brain on LSD, one of her long-standing ambitions. I sat down with her at her fabulous home, Beckley Manor, in the Oxfordshire countryside. It's really a pretty magical place. I apologise if the sound quality isn't amazing, But the room we were in has pretty vaulted ceilings and part of the house and surrounding moats date back to medieval times, so they weren't exactly built for soundproofing. You can hear the open fire crackling in the background and the clinking of glasses, so let's just call it ambience. I'd also like to say a big thank you to Jose, Vivian and the rest of the Beckley team who are just too numerous to mention uh, for all their hosting and facilitating, so many thanks. I believe that Amanda's achievement is fairly gargantuan when you really consider it. She started out in undoubtedly a much more chauvinist era as a young and ostensibly uncredentialed woman and through at times what I'm sure was sheer force of will, has managed to steer her foundation to the vanguard of groundbreaking and internationally acclaimed research in the field of psychedelics. So I started out by asking her if she could just drill down on the genesis of the foundation's collaboration. With Imperial
1: College London. I started the Beckley Foundation um, back in '96, um, '98, that sort of time. And um, I realised I could be more effective as a foundation rather than a single female. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I went and got um, leading scientists to be on my scientific advisory board. Mm -hmm. I started with Albert Hoffman, who discovered LFC, and then um, there was a very top neuroscientist in the UK. The uh, the top scientist was someone called Colin Blakemore, and um, the top scientist from Cambridge. So very kindly, they all came on my advisory board, Mm and um, made it more heavyweight, and so that I could approach the UN, the House of Lords, where I gave um, Mm. seminars, etc. And I think a little bit later, I approached Dave Nutt, who was Mm -hmm. in Bristol, Mm -hmm. and he joined um, Mm -hmm. the board. And um, what I'd always been doing since the very, very beginning, I set up the... Beckley Foundation, basically to do research into how do psychedelics work in the brain, how can we make use of them in the most beneficial way for humanity and society. That was my aim. But with the prohibitionist um, policies tightly in control, um, as they had been from the 60s, directed by the US through the UN, it was pretty well impossible at that point. No one, no scientists wanted to touch doing work with cannabis or the psychedelics because it could damage their reputation. And no institutions wanted to um, back research which might come out with positive results. So I was always looking for scientists I could work with Mm -hmm. because my ambition was to do, well, one um, brain imaging um, studies mm-hmm. and two clinical trials mm-hmm. and to do both those I needed to have partners mm-hmm. who had access to labs and mm. things. So I was always looking for scientists. So the first scientists I went with uh, with the Hefter group and then I worked mm. with this one that one and then I worked with the ones on my board. So I nearly set up uh, an institute in Oxford Colin Blakemore, Mm -hmm. but it needed too much funding so it never came about. And then I approached Dave Nutt, um, who I knew from being on my board, and um, persuaded him that we should do research on psychedelics together. Mm -hmm. Psychedelics wasn't his topic at that point. Mm -hmm. He was a a neuropharmacologist, but he was more into um, alcohol and other areas. Mm -hmm. So... um, it, that meant, and he very enthusiastically agreed, and but he didn't have um, a history in doing things mm-hmm. in psychedelics, so he rightly said that he thought we'd probably have to um, start with cannabis and then, I was wanting to go straight to LSD, start with cannabis, then move mm-hmm. through um, uh, through psilocybin to LSD so that's what we did mm-hmm. we, we set up the Beckley Bristol where he was at that time um, collaboration and we started work mm. and um, I, I got cannabis from GW's and we started work with cannabis and then he in, it, it was yeah I'd always warned him against um, being uh, chair of the advisory council of misuse of drugs so I thought mm. it would be a disaster and when it blew Why? up why did, you, why, did, why did you advise him at that time? What, did ah, you, what was your concern? Because they're very, um, um, you know, very corporate and government, and mm. I, I, I thought he'd find it. And also it would take his mind mm. off doing the Sure, search. yeah. So, Bandwidth, um, issue Yeah. So I thought um, it it was, I said it was a poisoned sword, I thought. Mm. But then when he got s- sacked, actually I was involved because I asked him to talk at a... a Conference I was giving um, at the House of Lords on uh, just an, a really seminal report on cannabis worldwide how is cannabis mm-hmm. treated, called cannabis policy moving beyond stalemate, and mm-hmm. it had the world's leading drug policy analysts mm-hmm. working on it, five of them, and then I was uh, convening mm-hmm. it and directing it kind of thing, and it was an extremely good report which actually made a lot of difference at the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, And I asked him if, obviously, he could come and talk about it. And he said, no, no, he can't in his position as chair of the um, advisory board. Mm -hmm. But he'll talk about how um, horse riding is more dangerous Mm -hmm. than MDMA. Mm -hmm. Um, And, of course, it was that talk which got him the sack. Sure. And so... um, But... Dave is a very resilient, and mm-hmm. he he was when he was young a very good Babington player. He worked, uh, moves very quickly on his feet, mm-hmm. and instead of getting crushed by being sacked, mm-hmm. he made it his Robin Hood moment, Absolutely. and so he became a star. Yeah. Well done, Dave. Yeah. So, um, as a that was Dave, and then at the when a bit later, I can't remember when he was at, but then. I forget when it was, 2008, I think, he moved to Imperial.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so then it became the Beckley uh, Imperial Research Programme, mm-hmm. Psychedelic Research Programme. We left out Psychedelic at that point, because sure. it was too, too, too taboo. Yeah. And Dave and I both directed the programme. And I was always heading to look, and investigate my old hypothesis, about underlying these changes in states of consciousness was a change in capillary volume. Mm-hmm. Not really blood and uh, global love, it was capillary, global capillary volume. That mm-hmm. was what I was looking for. So for that, in our first study on psilocybin, we did psilocybin because no one can spell it, no one knows what it means, and therefore <laughs> it slips through have slightly a... easier yes. than... LSD which mm-hmm. was totally
0: taboo in, hack, in the UK hack journalists are less likely to report on things that they don't know how to spell yes, exactly. nice circumnavigation tools. Exactly. <laughs> see, children, they circumnavigation too exactly so
1: everyone kind of triggered children bit not but say it was um, there had been research in fact in 1998 I did a study in Zurich using PET scan yeah. with someone called Franz Wollenweider. yes um to look at changes in blood supply, and interestingly we got changes which showed, just as I was expecting, um, quite a large increase in global um, blood volume, and Mm -hmm. also particularly in the frontal cortex. But when we did, several years later, our Betley Imperial psilocybin study, which proved to be very interesting, but we didn't see, strangely, any increase through the fMRI technique. Mm-hmm. But they're using different techniques, and different techniques come up with different findings, mm-hmm. which haven't yet been fully analyzed, what underlies it, and it's a very interesting area. Um, but what, um, so <clears throat> in that study, we were using both um, fMRI to see changes, in blood supply and also MEG which sees changes in electrical mm-hmm. patterns rather like EEG and um, it was very interesting what we found in that study we found a lot of interesting things but the main thing was that the most notable feature of um, the change in consciousness was a reduction in blood supply to the a system in the brain called the default mode network. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a network in the brain which is superimposed upon other functions. It's really um, it's a large part of what used to be called the ego. Mm-hmm. It, it's related to the sense of self, and it turns on when the task when doing a task ends. It's a default mode network, which uses an amazing amount of the brain's energy. Mm-hmm. And um, what was noticeable was that under the psilocybin state, the hub centers of the default mode network had less blood going to them and therefore less activity. And that means that this basically inhibitory network... Mm-hmm which controls the distribution of the blood to a major degree in the sense of self, um, diminished in its repressive activities. Mm-hmm. And that meant this change of consciousness, which is can be termed ego dissolution, mm-hmm. i.e. when the boundaries of the ego dissolve. Mm-hmm. And another term of it is Um, the mystical experience Mm -hmm. now probably people know mystical experience more than they think, I mean Mm -hmm. I think often in childhood we have mystical experiences or changes of consciousness in that way and obviously it's always been the centre of spiritual practices in Mm -hmm. every religion or practice at the core is the mystical experience Mm -hmm. and it's a very uh, fascinating um, area of human consciousness, mm-hmm. where um, one becomes loses one boundaries and one gets a feeling of unity with the all with whether we call it nature or God or mm-hmm. whatever terminology it is it's ex- expansion of the feeling of self we, we we lose the enclosing barriers of the smaller self and become part of a bigger self mm-hmm. and It's associated with um, joy and um, freedom and um, um, eternity, timelessness, many of those characteristics. Mm -hmm. And what we found in our later studies was that this state is very um, um, in tune, synchronized with a successful outcome mm-hmm. of overcoming psychological problems, deep psychological problems like depression mm-hmm. and addiction and mm-hmm. post traumatic stress disorder. All of these terrible psychological problems, which actually humanity is kind of charging more and more into, and there's becoming an epidemic mm-hmm. in the Western world of mental disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all based on a over-rigid setting in the default mode network, mm-hmm. meaning that these patterns of thought and behaviour, maybe through trauma, maybe uh, through conditioning, have got so deeply embedded and become rigid that the person is caught in a circular, um, everlasting talk of... Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, I'm so depressed. Mm-hmm. Or I need another drink. Or mm-hmm. whatever it is, a negative set of um,
0: identification with the self almost, which has yes. been narrated in a more with a more negative Absolutely. slant. Yeah. And it so. isn't
1: doing the person good and they probably know it, mm-hmm. but somehow it's so much part of them they can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. And so Currently, the treatment for these conditions is on the whole SSRIs, Mm -hmm. which is a pill which suppresses, Mm -hmm. and talking therapy. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, just talking therapy can't get down deep enough Mm -hmm. to unlodge this rooted rigidity. Mm -hmm. Whereas when the psychedelic, by removing the blood supply of this default mode network, it suddenly shakes up the setting. So it all becomes more mobile, flexible. It's like hot metal. Mm. It can be changed. Mm -hmm. So if the person has a wish and intention to get better, Mm -hmm. and also they're in a good um, setting, a therapeutic help with people, giving them the confidence to relax and get into themselves and face their demons and their their clouds inside their personality, it seems to be able to clean out the constrictions and shake it all up. And in an amazing way, a new and positive setting can Mm -hmm. take place. And this came more and more clear through our later research and also research at other um, institutions like John Hopkins did a mm-hmm. very fascinating study on the mystical experience. And um, obviously it's very uh, has much in common with high-level meditation, which mm-hmm. is also leading that way. Mm-hmm. And other endogenous experiences of mystical experience, which just happens through sure. the body's own um, serotonin or, or whatever it is, uh, yeah. the um, neurotransmitters, bring about a mystical experience. Mm-hmm. As we know yeah. from the great mystics like St. Teresa of Avila, mm-hmm. when she describes her mystical experience, it's Synonymous. very like yeah. an LSD. Sure. You'd think she was talking about LSD, mm-hmm. but no, she was talking about a mystical experience. Um, so it's common.
0: Mm, I think this is something which... Um, I believe, will pique the interest more generally because it is not scientifically possible. If you're thinking from a very materialist scientific perspective and you're reading the research, it's really not possible to read it without uh, without noticing what you've alluded to is that there is a statistically significant overlap between success rates, and it doesn't seem, you know, if it's to do with reducing experience of major depression, reported major depressive uh, instances, or smoking. Yes. Um, the overlap is reproducing, which is success rates and the occasioning of mystical experiences. Yes. Those are two, what have been, I think, previously described as almost non-overlapping magisteria. You know, there's, mm-hmm. the, there's the science over here, and then yes. there's the nuts and bolts of life here, yes. and then there's the woo-woo over here. Yes. And I think this is becoming a very interesting area where those two things are sort of rubbing up against each other. Absolutely.
1: I mean, we did a chart where we correlate the people Mm -hmm. who had a successful outcome in their overcoming, in this case it was a a treatment-resistant depression, with their uh, reporting of a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. And... um, it it's amazing how it's pretty well exactly correlated, mm-hmm. and it seems to be that that state, which isn't necessarily the same identical state as the peak experience, it has a lot of overlap. Mm-hmm. But a peak experience could have a lot of anxiety, could and you, negative, um, could, and then it's not so much the mystical experience.
0: Could you maybe sort of delineate those? sort of two terms in there, I think, which, which. Need, almost need yes. delineating between how would you define a peak experience and how would you differentiate that from a mystical experience
1: yes I, I, I think I would say there's a big overlap mm-hmm. but in a peak experience it could also be coloured by anxiety sure. and um, more less positive mm-hmm. whereas the qualities of a mystical experience are more those very positive ones, the feeling one mm-hmm. with the universe, mm-hmm. filled with joy, mm-hmm. um, timelessness, mm-hmm. um, kind of burst of positivity. Mm-hmm. There's a whole sequence of... Mm-hmm. Um, which is, in a sense, bliss. It's, mm-hmm. um, and it's strange and beautiful, I think, mm-hmm. how that experience is tied in with um, overcoming deeply inset um, problems. Mm -hmm. I mean, once I did a a Meg investigation with a very high-level mystic, lovely, lovely lady. Mm -hmm. And she was interested in science and wanted to help. Mm And so she went in the leg machine, which is much nicer than the fMRI. It's a great mm-hmm. big kind of hairdryer the way you <laughs> sit in it. And she came out glowing. Mm-hmm. And later she very kind of differently told me she'd had the best mystical experience she'd had in years. Mm-hmm. She she wasn't on anything. It mm-hmm. was just her meditating. Mm-hmm. So she was endogenously endogenously producing a mystical mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. And. Um, When we looked at the data, there was a great explosion of um, gamma um, in her um, cerebellum. Now, I meant, unfortunately, just instead of being able to continue with lack of funding, I think, Mm -hmm. I wanted to continue that study, and I Mm -hmm. didn't. But it was funny. I'm sure that correlates with the research we're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's interesting about a psychedelic is the experience you get through it you can get endogenously. Absolutely. Just by um, Mm -hmm. self-creation. And you could say definitely that's superior to Mm -hmm. do it through yourself, and I I think it is superior. Mm -hmm. But the trouble is it's incredibly difficult. And you can spend 35 years training yourself. So I think um, psychedelics are wonderful gifts of the gods to be used responsibly mm-hmm. in order to help us get to
0: mm-hmm. that level. There's a there's a lyric from a song which comes back to me um, quite often when I'm when I've been working with people with that almost rotted in anhedonia, you know, an inability to yes. experience anything approaching positive emotion at any point of the day. You, right. I'm it's sure any, any any, any clinician it's, will identify with those types of clients. They walk through the door and they just, they don't have any, Uh. there's something they've forgotten what joy could possibly be. It's sort of golem esque And the phrase that comes to me is, if I hadn't seen such riches, I can live with being poor. And if you can give people experiences through, it doesn't really matter if it is, if they experience an endogenous moment of awe in nature, or or through psychedelics, or through deep meditation. If that can punctuate and interrupt yes. the total totality of negative emotion, yes. that can be enough to remind people
1: that is there. That.
0: that is, yes. it is yes. it's it's hard work, but yes. it I I can access that. Yes. It wasn't. Yes. It's more real than it's just as real Absolutely. as the axioms yes. of. And it
1: is just as real, and I um I in my mind, one shouldn't uh, look negatively upon using something to aid one to get to that sure. area. Because the important thing is getting there. And then the amazing thing is how experiencing that area mm-hmm. has has been shown through research to help people with existential fear who've suddenly been told what a horrible thing to happen that you've got a death sentence. Mm-hmm. It's cancer, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, you're you're anxious. You're worried about the pain, the death, the family you're leaving, whatever. All the horrible things, and that can kind of kill the joy and mm-hmm. make the last period of life full of suffering for the person. Therefore, their carers and their families. Mm-hmm. And the the research, um, which was carried out by, um, really three different. Um, research at the beginning of it, but I'd love to carry it on. Mm-hmm. Um, John Hopkins, um, NYU, and um, uh, Charlie Grobe in uh, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, it showed an amazingly high success rate mm-hmm. of these people who were really deeply depressed and white, mm-hmm. you know, fully Not understandable, terrible. suddenly got filled with the idea of kind of the joy of oneness and the fear of death and dying. It wasn't the end anymore, Mm -hmm. it was just kind of changing and opening. And their family would report how how it had changed them and how how much happier they became in the family. And it just made it a lovely death instead Mm -hmm. of a sad occasion. And I think that is such a wonderful gift Mm -hmm. because at the moment, modern Western society doesn't know how to handle death
0: we don't die well
1: we do not (laughs) die well people are put in boxes they're given pills Mm -hmm. and um it's not a joyful thing at all in Um, the the sort of
0: palliative care setting which is which was i think really one of the things that i suppose really gave momentum to this renaissance you know that initial work it was like okay well you can do that work with people who are dying. What's the harm? Do you know that, yeah. was, the, yes. that was the foot in the door to, yes. to re establish the legitimacy, I think. I've spoken to numerous people who work in acute medicine, um, so you know they deal with death quite a lot. People mm. in emergency mm. medicine, um, my sister's a consultant, deals with that all the time. Friends who work in ICU, so those instances where death is very much prevalent as mm. part of the day to day life. And a sentiment which some of them have expressed to me is almost we we must rage against the dying of the light because it's the ultimate failure for a certain type yeah. of me- mentality. It's like when a person dies, yeah. the doctor feels that they've somehow failed yeah. the patient. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that because I feel like the medical sector understands that people... Die yeah. and must die well yes. but they feel somehow that they've they can't reconcile the fact that they haven't successfully kept that person alive so I, I just wonder what yeah. your thoughts are and how to yeah, how integrate did. it into that. I, it think, it, I think
1: death we must reintegrate we've cut death out of mm-hmm. society you're meant to go into a dark hole and die mm-hmm. in, in western culture mm-hmm. in a sense uh, whereas in more traditional societies it, it's all part of living and mm-hmm. people have people all around them and mm-hmm. I, I think we need to reintegrate dying mm-hmm. and respect it and mm-hmm. you know I'm a great believer that people should you know be allowed if they choose for, for euthanasia I think it's the next great battle mm-hmm. um, um, you know I've dedicated myself to the psychedelics but otherwise I think the the right to die is a very strong yes. thing but it would be wonderful to help people have happy deaths. Yes. And
0: um,
1: I think it's been shown that psychedelics and, and indeed cannabis. Um, I've just now been talking with this um, palliative care place for dying cancer patients in uh, quite a poor area of Kingston. Um, we're starting the first um, study I think ever to. Um, give people the availability to cannabis mm-hmm. um, to help with the pain and the other um, symptoms.
0: anxiety. I would imagine what's the what's the main sort of pain, thing?
1: anxiety, um, quality of life, yeah. sleeping, mm-hmm. um, eating, all of mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. And I feel that should spread. Well, I would have liked to have done it with both cannabis. And maybe microdosing mm-hmm. of um, LSD or psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Just, I think people who are dying shouldn't be excluded from the possibility of having something which increases their joy and mm-hmm. their compassion and their understanding of the whole picture. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think through the use, the clever use of these medicines, mm-hmm. um, we could make. Dying a much more joyful happening, mm-hmm. um, or less suffering happening. Mm-hmm. It, it, as, um, it's it's it's
0: an extraordinary um, you know if you look at the statistics and people like doctors like Peter Atia and these people the sort of brand of doctor who deal with longevity will 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 sh- will sort of put up graphs and show the, the how much expenditure of individuals in private healthcare systems and national healthcare systems how much the expenditure in terms of resources, finances, clusters in your last decade. You know, there's an awful yes. lot of yes. repudiation of death that goes on. Yes, yes. Um, so I think that, which is the most important thing, but helping people to pass away peacefully and for that to be, yes. everyone in the family to be yes. um, as peaceful as possible. Yes. There is that other side of things, the more, you know, brass tacks of it is... we. We throw an extraordinary amount of money, uh, yes. medicating people, and uh, Absolutely. and they just don't die well, and it's very, it's very yes. expensive it, and messy business. It's a
1: very tragic area, mm-hmm. and actually, it's pushed away, and mm-hmm. um, I'm glad to hear that the uh, WHO World Health Organization are now rather um, targeting it, and amazingly, the centre where um, we're going to do this study, um. Is one of the six centres in the world which Mm the WHO is studying. Mm -hmm. So if the um, result of this research is positive, hopefully Mm -hmm. it will have more influence Mm -hmm. at spreading the practice, disseminating it around the world. Because we die very... uh, Our system is not helping a healthy approach to die. Mm -hmm. So it's one major area that I'd love the Beckley Foundation's work and Mm -hmm. future work to kind of concentrate on. But then the thing about psychedelics which I find so exciting is that they're very completely non-specific in their areas Mm -hmm. of um, possible benefits. I mean because of the prohibitionist policies we've got Mm -hmm. so wrongly installed for all the wrong reasons not based on science but based on Scientific, um, political ex- yeah. expediency and the wish to get into those countries which produce yeah. these things and mm-hmm. control them, uh, I mean all the wrong reasons um, very little truth I mean in why for instance cannabis and the psychedelics are in schedule one which means no medical advantage at all and the most dangerous category of compounds, well both of those are proven to be totally wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, our ancestors knew it was wrong thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. So we've really gone back in our understanding, Mm -hmm. but now scientifically we've managed to prove that those, that basic premise is wrong. Mm -hmm. So these compounds should be taken out of Schedule 1, definitely, Mm -hmm. and at the minimum put into Schedule 2, where doctors can prescribe them. Mm And scientific work on them can be done more easily and cheaper. Mm -hmm. So that's the basic thing. But what I'm really saying, because of the prohibition, um, we've very much concentrated on psychedelics' potential to heal sickness. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, when I saw these terrible gates of prohibition come down in the Mm -hmm. 60s and 70s, what a total disaster and what human suffering is going to cause. Mm-hmm. Missed um, opportunity. But we we need to yeah, um, get through it, and the best way to get through it is to do scientific research which shows how these compounds work in the brain, how they can be used to benefit man. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, it's all based on healing sickness, Mm -hmm. and that is obviously incredibly important and central, but then also one wants to think how they can be used to um, better Mm well-being, enhance the healthy, um, expand cognitive functioning, Mm -hmm. creativity, compassion, love, Mm -hmm. um, human relationships, Mm -hmm. all of which aren't registered as indications yes. oh. changing Change, yeah. but I mean n- to die happily is incredibly valuable mm-hmm. because it leaves happy memories mm-hmm. in and the minds of the relatives. And,
0: and, that, and that really does fan out in a in a materially true way <coughs> if someone if you've ever been around someone who's died very poorly mm-hmm. the suffering of their ending does not die with them it, no. it intergenerationally spans out in yeah. the Yes. psychopathology of the children who didn't feel you know, what whatever, and yes. similarly the, um, the, it can create an upward cycle when someone does die well, so I suppose for me the line that I think we almost need to, to tra- tread is, how can we how can we celebrate these, co- these compounds' ability to improve life yes. without repudiating death yes. at the absolutely. same time
1: absolutely, and I'm at the moment doing some really exciting research actually in Brazil with three different teams of scientists there looking at how uh, these compounds and I'm always particularly interested in LSD because that's one I'm most intimately and mm-hmm. I think is the cleanest and mm-hmm. in a way the most magical of all these yeah. compounds and has the worst reputation so still hasn't become out of the clouds of mm-hmm. bad press um, but... We're looking at things like how they can um, increase neuroplasticity uh, or um, improve, um, be Mm anti-inflammatory. And a whole range of conditions, including things like diabetes and depression, are based on inflammation. Mm -hmm. So if these compounds can actually work at a physiological level, which I'm sure they can, but hasn't really got opened up. Mm-hmm. And also um, um, neuroregeneration, the birth of new cells. we've mm-hmm. done research with ayahuasca mm-hmm. um, showing in the petri dish how they can suddenly uh, burst the birth of new cells course. Mm-hmm. And this could in time prove beneficial maybe for things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. So there are vast areas which we haven't even touched with these psychedelic compounds could help humanity. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, one is the physiological, but the other is improving well-being. And in that sense, actually, I think um, I'm doing the first research in um, uh, uh, laboratories with uh, colleagues in Maastricht, investigating um, the microdosing Mm -hmm. And it's a very fascinating phenomenon of microdosing. It means not taking a whole dose, whatever we call that, which changes consciousness at a deep level, but taking a fraction of a dose, whatever that is, so that you get, the person gets a a little direction in that direction of loosening the ego's control. Mm -hmm. So the brain the, the whole personality it gets slightly more vital more energetic more focused more free um, they're more simultaneous happening in the brain i.e. the more centers in the brain are firing simultaneously mm-hmm. so it's a kind of freer richer more colorful form of consciousness is a slightly um, what um, a psychedelic does is make the consciousness more primal. It, it pushes it in the direction of um, what a baby's consciousness was, more. where more of the brain is functioning simultaneously. So there's a more intense focus on one area, bursting, but it's informed the area of consciousness. Recruiting
0: different... Uh, different brain parts. parts and yeah. we
1: did a research which showed how 20 different extra parts of the brain were feeding into the consciousness, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So, that explains why, if you're listening to music on a psychedelic, mm-hmm. or indeed on in cannabis, you suddenly are aware of a much richer orchestration of sounds. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking at beauty, I mean, we used to joke that it's an insult to beauty, to... Get, to see it in in not in an optimum state of consciousness yeah, yeah. you're fully your senses are fully um awake and mm. you can get the full burst and it's mm-hmm. uh, it's also associated with memories and love and um so the beauty is richer mm. and I think um these techniques of enhancing consciousness i mean I would always come back to agree that to be able to do it without the need of any substance is, um, is superior, mm-hmm. really. I mean, if you can just do it through your own meditative skills, yes. that's a wonderful art to be highly respected. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, the masters of those arts, like the mystics, Used to go for twenty five years and live in a cave or something. Mm -hmm.
0: It's just not. It's difficult to take the bins out and do the school run when you. (laughs) You know this doesn't map onto normal life. And
1: um, the use of, and this is where I think microdosing is a very interesting phenomenon because it doesn't mean to say you have to drop your everyday Mm -hmm. um, activities at all. It means that you can. borrow a bit of that extra energy which Mm -hmm. comes from the use of these compounds to enhance every day Mm -hmm. to make your focus more your enjoyment of your work more um, so you can bring that extra vitality joy, freedom um, to your everyday life and right ago I started this work back before these compounds were been made illegal, actually, in the 60s, 66, and I was amazed by the potential, particularly of LSD, mm-hmm. to enhance. And our particular focus was really in how they could enhance cognitive functioning. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, we was also fascinated by how they could enhance enjoyment, fun, mm-hmm. sure. laughter, love, all of those things, yeah. enjoyment of beauty, music. But how they could enhance disciplined cognitive functioning. Yes, And um, so that's really what we used them for. When I say them in our terms, it was really LSD. In in the early days, when we used it to work deeper. um, We were very passionate Go players, an Mm -hmm. ancient Chinese game of Go. And Go has no luck. It's um, you put stones black or white, depending which. The better player plays with white. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very psychological game, mm-hmm. and what you're trying to do is enclose space. So it's a spatial recognition mm-hmm. game, and um, it has a handicap system so players of different um, levels can have uh, equal game between themselves. And what um, we discovered was, at least I discovered that if I was playing on the right um, dose of LSD, and most importantly was also keeping my blood sugar level Mm -hmm. roughly normal, Mm -hmm. which meant, one, taking um, time-release vitamin C so that the body can make adrenaline and Mm -hmm. naturally increase... The blood sugar level, and two eating Mm sweetmeats to keep the sugar level just what you you normally have it. You don't want to go too high, or the insulin puts it away. You want to try to get to that normal bracket. Mm -hmm. And I knew all about sugar level because my father was a very bad diabetic, and Mm -hmm. I was the youngest in the family, and it was my job to keep his sugar level. Uh, He was constantly. Falling, having shortages and falling mm. in ditches, and yeah, so I was very conscious at your level. Yeah. So, when I was told about this um, by this brilliant um, science, a Dutch a scientist in 1966, it meant a lot to me. I suddenly realized, my goodness me, I can actually learn to drive this increased mm-hmm. consciousness, I can get through a psychedelic. I'm not. Mm-hmm there at the whim of the winds and the currents, I can actually take control and learn to use it to my cognitive advantage.
0: And produce and tangible results. Yes. In and in quantifiable the game of GER,
1: improvements. I played uh, my partner thousands of games. We minded passionately about it. We wrote them all down on a list, the winner mm-hmm. and loser. And if I was an LSD And he wasn't. I was a slightly better player. So he had a handicap of three. And if I wasn't and he wasn't. His handicap went up three stones, which Mm -hmm. means I won nine games, Mm -hmm. which is a lot. And then it would come down again as he saw the tricks I'd got from higher Mm -hmm. up the mountain. It's like being higher up a mountain. You Mm -hmm. see the board from a higher view and your um, instinctual aha moment Mm -hmm. comes into... Play, mm-hmm. and that's what I'd love to catch. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was doing the protocol of this uh, microdosing study, I I uh, had included the go element mm-hmm. to see if in brain imaging you can catch that aha moment when you just know the, result. the
0: result. Well, I think um, it's an interesting, and we we'll, I'll be linking to all of these various things through your website. You know, because I understand that's a that's a future area. Mm-hmm. To, to sort of circle back on anecdotal evidence yes. that microdosing is, is effective for these yes. attentional, uh, enhanced cognitive functioning. Yes. But th- it was interesting when I saw that you were, uh, you know, studying the game of Go because that's another point of convergence between psychedelics and I think the tech world because yes. Go, yes. you know, famously, that yes. was the first time that AI, yes. <laughs> you know, really showed us that it yes. could be the deep mind type moves yes. were were not logarithmically predicted, so to speak. No, and
1: and but actually what I gathered is they only got to win by human input. Exactly. Um, um I think it was a, it was a sp- name, European I the name level, a lower level, the person, the player, who was beaten by the machine and told the tech people, it's the unexpected that's yes. what beats you. It was a, it was you a, have to bring in the unexpected, and that's yeah. what the human brain can do. Yeah. And then they built it into the algorithm. Uh, um,
0: good. I'm yeah. I'm pleased to hear that yes. because at least it's not our the first. We won't look back at that moment and say, "Oh, that was the moment our robot overlords." <laughs> <when Yes. laughs> I think the, the, the robot first needed the board. human
1: brain good, to thank get it over.
0: Yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but um, I uh, I'd love to put a pin in microdosing because there's something which has come up a few times. Mm. I want to circle back on uh, that we were discussing l- last last night over over dinner a potential, a seeming impasse which might not be an impasse if only we're able to laterally see around it and that is the issue of funding yes. because there, the, the common story now if you, you dig into people who are wanting to move this research forward, wanting to understand that it needs to infill through all these areas and recruit different silos of expertise... You hear these wonderful ideas. Yeah. The inevitable bottleneck that you come up against yeah. is, I had this idea, everybody was ready to go, but we just yeah. couldn't secure the funding. Yeah. There are areas where now big, big investments are, yeah. are, are, are moving in, big investors are moving in. Yeah. And I think any wise person, regardless of your political persuasion, does not like the prospect of monopoly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how do you see... The funding issue, s- moving through massive monopolized corporate interest, and mm. also government piecemeal, you yes. know, uh, sort of feeding. How, how do we help yes. open source and, and, and make yes. it r- robust and varied? How Absolutely. Do
1: we? I mean, I, I started the Beckley Foundation with no mm. money, but at the same time, now particularly... One needs more money. I can do so much wonderful research mm-hmm. at the moment with more money. Because scientific research is very expensive. And the fact that these are controlled substances in the highest category of danger and control, mm-hmm. i.e. Schedule 1, mm-hmm. multiplies the cost by a fantastic degree. Yes. So for the last three years I've been planning this, brain, um, this microdosing study. Well, microdose is so that it's barely perceptible. It is perceptible, but it's at the lower end of perceptibility, so at the lower end of any possible danger. And yet the person, in the UK at least, has to be in a lab room mm-hmm. with two sitters and a yeah. doctor on call, mm-hmm. and then you to do a proper um, scientific research, you need placebo of an equal number. Mm-hmm. Well, that becomes fantastically exp- expensive. And with something with such a slight difference at as um, microdosing, you want a lot of big number to get significance. Sure. So it ideally would be, I mean, it is anyhow with uh, whatever, 50 subjects, half on placebo, very expensive, but one would actually like to make it 10 times bigger.
0: Yes. Um,
1: so that one's really got a big number. Mm. One also would like to run it for six months to show that having a microdose, intermittently over a long period, mm-hmm. is safe.
0: Longitudinal type studies, yeah, which are exactly. even more expensive, and they're
1: even more expensive. So, my great hope is that there are a lot of people now, out there in 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 the world, um, who have made very large sums of money, and what it would be wonderful to reach out and um, is to those ones who want to do good in the world. Mm-hmm. They, they want to make a profit. They don't want to lose their money. Sure. You know, some are happy to give philanthropically, which mm-hmm. is wonderful and the best of all possibilities. But there's a whole other range of people who I think, so long as they could see that the likelihood is that they'll get return, mm-hmm. you know, some return on their funding um, in the long term, would be happy to invest for the good of... Humanity, you know, and the world more generally. Mm-hmm. The, I, people who would like an ethical investment mm-hmm. which will hopefully produce a profit. Mm-hmm. And I think that psychedelic science is a, really a win-win because mm-hmm. I'm, after 50 years of really totally dedicated to this subject, I am sure they can bring benefit to the individual and a society. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I definitely think psychedelics aren't for everyone at all. I think no. it's a minority game, mm-hmm. whatever we like to say 10%, sure. 20%, yeah. a small number of people. We want to use it to heal people for specific things, mm-hmm. particularly mental illness, which as we know is becoming an epidemic in the Western world. Mm-hmm. And I think psychedelics. Provide a potential for a paradigm shift in psychiatry. Mm-hmm. But that's only part of the area where these compounds can benefit society, mm-hmm. as we were talking about. They can physiologically be- benefit people, but they can also benefit them at a well being, increase creativity, create mm-hmm. happiness, flexibility, compassion, all of these more esoteric, hard to tie down qualities mm-hmm. and we should enable that to happen mm-hmm. and I think it needs inspired um, philanthropists a lot of these people I, I mean I come across a lot of mm-hmm. them but I'm no good at, my, at fundraising actually uh, but um, you know people who've made money out of the tech industry or this or that uh, through some clever uh, undertaking they've mm-hmm. made vast sums of money and I feel that a lot of them would like to do something good Mm -hmm. with a part of that money Mm -hmm. at least and feel that quite rightly that they're doing something to improve humanity Mm in the world and it's a question of how does one
0: connect connect with that I I, I also think and we've again spoken about this but often the, the sort of dichotomy is set up where it's like well, you can get a return on investment or you can't, but I think the definition of what constitutes a you know a return on investment is often given to potential investors in a very narrow way, mm-hmm. where yeah. it's like if you make if you give a million pounds and you get two million back, that's a profit.
1: yeah
0: but there are many ways that I see people getting returns on investments with money, yeah. Yeah. because and i've I've worked with them in, in the in higher end rehabs. They will spend gobs of money on something which quantifiably doesn't bring them that much happiness. they yeah. think yeah. if if you've ever sat with someone who owns a big yacht and you say, "What about your yacht?" Most of the time they don't talk about oh, it was wonderful. we went to yeah. the Coke dessert yeah. most of the time they're well oh, I had to this went wrong with it, and I had yeah. to put it in dry dock and yeah. you think, yeah, that's such a terrible return on investment where yeah. I think you see people who have ...discovered a whole area of life... ...give yes. back to humanity... Yes. ...and even if they didn't initially do it... ...for the purpose of philanthropy... Yes. ...they start to realise that their happiness... ...the axiom that their happiness... Yes. ...and enjoyment is yes. tied in, invariably tied in... Yes. ...with everybody else's... ...yes,
1: absolutely... ...I so think that's very true... ...they very just very can't true. be happy if they keep that money... ...yes, yes... ...so hopefully... ...penny-penny... Uh, ...that would be wonderful if yes. somehow... Um, ...that can happen... ...because actually... In my personal state, I, I'm, I'm really doing some very exciting studies, I suppose mm-hmm. about 20 studies I'm mm-hmm. doing, I think, at the moment. and um, But to bring these compounds, go through phase three, one, two, three yeah. clinical trials, and get them so they get a licence to be used and prescribed by doctors, and then hopefully... In time, even further than that, people can legitimately get psychedelics so that they can experience it. In my opinion, one's own consciousness is a totally private thing, which has mm-hmm. nothing to do with the government or mm-hmm. the prohibition, mm-hmm. so long as one uses it well. I mean, obviously, if one uses it to go around beating children and blah, 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 <laughs> sure. then you deserve to be punished in a normal mm-hmm. way. But if you're using it in a privately good way and beneficial, it is your right and indeed society's benefit Mm -hmm. to allow you to um, expand and alter and explore new areas and, as I see it, bring back valuable goodies from the areas you go to to society at large. And Mm. so instead of being... Frightened and prohibitory to mm-hmm. people who want to go and explore these distant sites in the conscious world, society should be very happy that they want to go, mm-hmm. that they're explorers and prepared to go Absolutely. to these slightly more frightening areas of mm-hmm. consciousness, and hopefully bring back new insights. I th- and um,
0: I think I think your um your point about um. The, the sort of co- the sort of cognitive libertarian argument that that right mm-hmm. is potentially the fundamental human right the yes, of it it own c- consciousness I
1: I I think that what what in the in the American yeah. world the uh, uh, f- fathers who wrote the, the Constitution they never dreamt that anyone could dream of not thinking that it was a basic right. That's why they didn't put in anything about it. Because <laughs> it was obvious. <laughs> you know, it's obvious that your consciousness, so long as you aren't doing anything bad mm. with your consciousness, mm. is yours to decide what you do with it. Right. And I think we need to re-establish as a basic human right mm-hmm. the freedom of consciousness. I mean, it seems so obvious. I wouldn't even have thought
0: one should have but to say it. We, we, I think we need to be fundamental truths sometimes. We've yes. become so polarised politically and in different ways that we need to remember that we can all converge on, yeah. on that yeah. I'm very conscious of your time because you're an extraordinarily busy woman having spent a, a day in, in this wonderful place um,
1: I just I, I want to say of course, that the centre of religions yeah. um is the mystical experience yeah. and we all um, people who've been religiously whatever religion it is they respect that centre And that center is an alteration of consciousness. It's achieving that mystical state of oneness. Mm -hmm. And these compounds are really... Always used to be called the gift of the gods, the food of the gods, the flesh of the gods. Mm -hmm. And we should re-respect them Mm -hmm. as tools, we humans... And indeed, in the past, animals, deer, and Mm. uh, different animals have eaten them. But, I mean, as humans, we can um, add them to our cornucopia of useful tools. Mm -hmm. And it would be lovely for us to respect it and use it, and instead of prohibiting it, through um, regulation, we can teach and help young people, if they want to, to use these things safely. Because mm-hmm. its prohibition is causing much more damage than it saves people. Isn't mm-hmm. it? it was created to um, protect people's health. But actually, it is us. It was a mistake. Yeah. And we need to reapproach how we approach this. Reintegrate it. Um, yeah. i um, was t- yes.
0: uh, just curious. Um, you've... You say that I love that phrase of, you know, going out there to these frontiers and coming back with goodies. Yes. I'd be curious to know we're surrounded by some of your fantastic art- artwork and obviously you've you've a a full and rich life in policy and, and different areas. What do you think for you personally, Amanda, has been the most important goodie that you've brought back to your life from those experiences? Oh my gosh.
1: I I just think it's that altering consciousness can enrich one. And I'm very, very grateful that um, I happen to go down a path which realised the value of altered states of consciousness, whether you get it uh, through spirituality, through religions, or people get it through exercise and fasting and and, uh, meditating and things, or whether you get it through the use of the plants which nature has provided one for, or that even the toad produces a venom which can get optimum, maximum Mm. changes of consciousness, or whether it's synthetically produced by, like LSD, which was produced by actually a mystical scientist, Albert Hoffman, who, when he first mistakenly ingested a bit of LSD through some magical mistake, he recognized it to the mystical experience he'd had as a youth and so thought, This is yeah. very fascinating. I must try this again. I have been here before. Yeah, in some exactly. Days. And so it's not something foreign being imposed into yes. the human personality. It's something deeply endogenous which we're reclaiming. And it's enabling us to use more of our brain power, consciousness, our um, insights potential, um, rather than imposing something foreign into it. And I just think it, it can be a key to help us. And I think humanity is in a very um, difficult position at the moment. We've uh, kind of moved ahead so much in all those clever things our brain can do, like technology and all these other things. But our internal... Balance hasn't really advanced uh, in, in the same way and actually I think these compounds give a new paradigm approach to psychiatry but also to just human understanding of how we work mm-hmm. uh, not to say they're the end of the game at all but no. I think they open up a doorway so we can go deeper into human understanding and consciousness and um, continue to grow, as I'm sure, if we survive. Mm-hmm. But we mustn't think that by nature we would survive. Um, things go extinct and we could all easily go extinct. Mm-hmm. So we want to take it a little bit seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think to ignore the potential of what these tools which can expand our consciousness can do when um, responsibly used would be a mistake for humanity mm-hmm. and at the moment things are really heating up to be quite crucial so in a sense uh, the human civilization's a little bit at a, and it's, it's in a war zone with itself in a sense mm-hmm. so we need to um, make use of it and I think we're in a very good position suddenly the resistance against this knowledge has broken down and with the amazing communication system through the internet, knowledge can pass very, very quickly. So things can change very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe we're on the cusp of this change. Mm-hmm. But as you rightly say, in order to carry out the research, we need funding, because mm-hmm. research is expensive. Mm-hmm. And I do think the science is the new religion, and we need to um, harness science to explore how they work and also to um, demonstrate to the public that they do produce something valuable mm-hmm. which can improve society yeah. and human health. Mm-hmm. And I think probably we're at, you know, at a vaguely where the door is ajar mm-hmm. and so we just need to, well, kind to of <laughs> walk through. <laughs> <laughs> Kick it open and walk through.
0: <laughs> well um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your hospitality and man, thank you for talking to me. I think there's about f- half a dozen topics where we could easily just focus on yeah. and speak yeah. indefinitely. And I'd love, to, I'd love to have you back on the podcast well, in the future lovely. if you would like. Lovely, lovely yeah. meeting you both,
1: yeah. and it's been a great pleasure. And let's continue the good fight.
0: Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Amanda. Uh, If you want more information about what uh, her organization is up to, just go to beckleyfoundation.org. And please, please, if you can, donate whatever you can to their organization. We really need to keep funding this groundbreaking research. Another little request would be that you could give us a review on iTunes. And please get in touch at mindmanifestpodcast.com. You can see contact forms on that website. Just with any suggestions or maybe guests you'd like to hear us interview. We read every email and we'd really like to be responsive to your needs. So until next time, thanks for listening.